Well, today we are continuing our series, an introduction to systematic theology, where we have been looking at the core fundamental doctrines of our faith. And of course, as we look at our standards, there you will find out what these doctrines are. And we've reached the point where we, we, where we are beginning to consider the doctrine of God's law. Now, rather than go straight into the commandments, Pastor Enro decided to do a bit of introduction and he got called away, which I'll share with you in our prayers later on. Got to talk to him yesterday. And then Pastor JP stepped in and did another three lessons. Now we're going to actually start looking at each of the Ten Commandments. We're going to spend one Sunday per commandment. Now you may be thinking, well, one Sunday isn't enough for each commandment. And you'd be right. For example, if you just read questions 103 to 106 of the larger catechism, you'll see that there is a ton of things to consider with just the first commandment alone. In fact, if you recall, when our pastor began his series on the law of God, I don't know if you remember this, he said in the beginning, we're going to do three or four sermons per commandment. Well, he preached 21 sermons on the first commandment alone. But given what we have noted about the law of God, we shouldn't be surprised by that. I noted just last week that the law of God is perfect and spiritual, that the law of God is complete, it is without defect and flawless, it is sufficient, that the law of God addresses the whole man, body and soul. It deals not only with issues of the body, you may say external, but also deals with the inner man, his thoughts, his hearts, his affections, his desires. We also noted last week that when God commands a duty, the contrary is forbidden. And where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. Likewise, where a promise is attached, the contrary threat is included. And where a threat is attached, the contrary promise is included. All of that is just another way of saying and pointing out the reality that while the Ten Commandments contain the whole of God's moral law, the Ten Words are in and of themselves not a full, explicit expression of that moral law. Rather, they are a summary of God's moral law. You know, it, it always helps me to think of it this way. Maybe this will help you. Think of the law of God as a book with ten chapters. And each of the Ten Commandments are a chapter heading. Now, what do chapter headings do? They're short, precise statements, usually, unless you're reading a Puritan. But they give you a summary of what you can expect to find in that chapter. They don't express everything in that chapter, otherwise there wouldn't be any need for the chapter. But the contents of that chapter are contained and summarized in that short little heading. You know, just read Calvin. If you just read the table of contents in Calvin's Institutes, you get a really good idea of what he's going to be teaching on just by reading the table of contents. That's what the Ten Commandments are. Now you may be thinking, well, these are just chapter headings. Then where are the chapters? Where's the content? And the answer to that is very simple. The rest of the content is found in the whole of Scripture. It is in the rest of Scripture where you will find each of the commandments elaborated on. It is in the rest of the scripture where you will actually find case laws 
That is, you will find illustrations of the basic principles that are expressed in each commandment with specific cases. And then from those cases, you can learn more about what the commandment is and how to apply it. Let me just give you a quick example of this. In Exodus 20:15, we have the eighth commandment. Thou shalt not steal. That's the chapter heading. That's a short, simple declaration of a principle. Well, then in Deuteronomy 24, 5, or 25, 4, we have an illustration of that principle. There it says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. In other words, muzzling the ox would prevent the ox who is working for you from being nourished by the harvest that it is helping to produce. And this is an example of theft. Well, then when you get to the New Testament, Paul turns around, takes all of that, and argues this in 1 Corinthians 9. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? If others share in this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, as you heard, Paul made the choice not to make use of that right. That choice was for him to make and him alone. Those for whom Paul worked did not have the option to withhold that right from him. Do you not see how rich and applicable the law of God is to all of life? There is so much here to consider and to apply. And I got to tell you, one of the worst and most damning things that has ever happened in our churches today is to ignore and downplay this law. We do it to our own destruction. It's despicable. And it's no wonder why we're so confused and lost and powerless today in the church. Well, I better get on to the first commandment before I run out of time. But I just simply wanted to point out to you, beloved, that this law is rich. It's deep. And there's much to consider, yet it's not the purpose of this series to dive that deep. We have other material that does that, like our pastor's uh, series written with the finger of God. In this series, we're just introducing to you these ideas, these commandments. And so what I have to do today is then take this first commandment and give you a basic general idea of what it's about and maybe point you in a direction in hope that you will study these things out further. And of course, the challenge for me is to figure out just what exactly to highlight, since there's so much. Well, today, I've chosen to reflect specifically on the wording of the commandment itself, and in particular, the words, 
before me. I think there's a lot we can glean from these words. Again, the commandment is this, Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. And what I want to do in the remainder of our time is examine these words before me. These words before me, they're quite interesting. In fact, the divines in both the larger and shorter catechisms dedicate an entire question to these words. In question 106 of the larger, they ask, what are we specifically taught by these words before me in the first commandment? And I believe that's a great question to ask, especially when you consider that our English word before can mean a number of different things. Before can refer to a preceding event, a preceding time or date. It can mean that something or someone is in front of something or someone else. It can also refer to someone or someone that takes priority to something or someone else. Could it be that God is allowing for the worship of other gods so long as he has given priority over these other gods? Now, to some of us, that may seem like a silly question, but it's not so obvious to many people. It may not have been obvious to Israel, who spent 430 years living in a polytheistic world of Egypt. The worship of many gods was common practice. So maybe that's okay as long as Jehovah God takes priority over these other gods. You know, there are actually stories of missionaries who have gone to, into areas to bring the gospel, to introduce the God of Scripture to people. And they invited them to accept Yahweh, but didn't tell them to repent of their other gods. Just add them to the, add them to the group, add them to the bunch. It's okay as long as you make Yahweh your priority. Many within, within Israel did this. In 2 Kings 17, it speaks of those who, quote, feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. So apparently then there were even many Israelites who saw no problem with serving God and serving these other gods. And perhaps they reasoned that well, it's okay as long as we make Yahweh a priority. We put him before these other gods. Is that what the first commandment is telling us? Well, before I get into the larger catechism's answer, I want to share a little bit of uh, thoughts. I love Logos Bible software. You can just click on stuff and bring up tons of information about the languages and all that. And one of the questions that I had before I even looked at the divine's answer on this question was, what exactly is the Hebrew text saying here? What Hebrew words are we translating into the English as before me? Well, the word before here in the Hebrew is actually the translation of two Hebrew words, preposition and a noun. The preposition is a word which means upon, above, or over. It comes from the root word Allah, which means to go up, to ascend, or to climb. The noun that's used here in the Hebrew is the word that literally means face. Now, what's really interesting is that the Hebrew language has a word 
that is typically translated as before in the English. It's the word lifnai. Lifnai means before or in front of. It can express location or order, just like our English word before does. But that's not the word that's used here in the first commandment. Rather, the Hebrew uses the phrase alpanei, which literally means upon my face or before my face or in front of my face. You could say it this way, have no other gods in my presence. And so in this first commandment, God is literally telling Israel not to put other gods in front of his face. Now, it's possible that this could be alluding to a practice that was common in those days where a conquering nation would take the idol of the nation that it had just conquered and they would place it in front of or beside their deity to show contempt for that captured God and to honor their chief God. We read about this, for example, in 1 Samuel 5. It says, when the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Lord, or for the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon in both his hands were lying cut off of the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. God reduces this, their God to a trunk. Their trunk God. Verse 5, this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Again, you just got to love this story. Here, Dagon was their national god of the Philistines. It was a god they often praised and honored as being the source for their military success. We read this in Judges 16. It says, Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. So they captured the ark of God and placed it beside their God, Dagon, and what happens? They wake up the next morning and he's literally bowing before the ark. So they put him back up. They go to bed. They wake up the next morning and they find Dagon's head completely cut off and beheaded and his hands laying there on the floor. I think this story helps illustrate for us what God is getting at with the first commandment. Don't put these other gods before my face. Don't put these other gods beside me so as to suggest that we can coexist. There are to be no gods in my presence. Now, if this is the general idea of these words, then it raises another question. 
how does a person go about doing this exactly? How do we go about putting other gods before or in front of the face of God? After all, have we not already learned in our study that God is spirit? God doesn't consist of a body or parts. God doesn't have a literal face like we have. Furthermore, God is infinite in his being. He's not bound by space. And so everything is in his presence in some sense. And in that case of Dagon, it literally involved taking a physical ark that represented Yahweh and setting it down by a physical statue that represented Dagon, neither of which we have today. So how exactly should we make sense of this for today? And so I think if you just think about the words, the way it's worded, we can see that as we reflect upon their meaning, what this reflection will lead us to is to think about the very nature of our God, the very nature of this God that we serve. And this now leads me to the answer given in the larger catechism. Notice how in answering the question, what do the words before me mean, the divines are led, just as we were in our Hebrew word study, to consider the nature and character of God. And so how did they answer? This is how they answered. They said, these words before me or before my face in the first commandment teach us that God, who seeth all things, taketh special notice of and is much displeased with the sin of having any other God that so it may be an argument to dissuade from it and to aggravate it as a most impudent provocation as also to persuade us to do as in his sight whatever we do in his service, end quote. So notice the divines emphasize here three aspects. One, God who sees all things. Two, the God who taketh notice of sin, particularly the sin of idolatry. And third, the God who was much displeased with sin particularly the sin of idolatry. In other words, we are to reflect on his nature, on his character. And such reflection on the nature and character of God then in turn leads us to consider as well the spiritual nature of our worship. John Calvin writes, for in Hebrew, the expression before the face generally means over against. Therefore, God would not have companions obtruded upon him and placed, as it were, in his sight. Meanwhile, it seems probable to me that he alludes to that manifestation of himself which ought to have retained his people in sincere piety. For true and pure religion was so revealed in the law that God's face in a manner shone forth therein. The case was different with the Gentiles who, although they write, they might rashly make to themselves false gods, still would not do so before the face of God, which was unknown to them. Let us then understand, after all, that those alone are accounted the legitimate worshipers of God who bid adieu to all figments and cleave to him alone. Nor can it be doubted that these words comprehend the inward worship of God. Since this commandment differs from the next, that is the second commandment, whereby external idolatry will be seen to be condemned. It is sufficiently notorious that men may make to themselves gods in other ways besides in statues and pictures and visible forms. 
If any should adore the angels instead of God or should foolishly imagine any other secret divinity, none will deny that he would offend against this law. God, therefore, calls for the affections of the heart that he alone may be spiritually worshipped and the expression before my face may be not inaptly referred to this because although their impiety who secretly turn aside to false worship and cherish their errors within their own bosoms may be able to evade the eyes of men, yet their hypocrisy and treachery will not escape the notice of God. Well, I think what Calvin here makes perfect sense, what he says here. How can our erroneous worship escape the notice of God when you consider the very nature of of this God that we serve. And so knowing who and what God is is a necessary requirement to obeying this first commandment. And a necessary requirement to knowing who and what God is is to have a revelation of this God. And this in turn leads us back to the necessity of knowing rightly and believing Scripture. Jesus told us in John chapter, John tells us in uh, chapter 20 that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Beloved, the first commandment of God teaches us that not only are we to have a God, but that we are to know and to believe and to worship the one and true only God. And that we must do in spirit and in truth. And the only way you're going to do that in truth is through the word. Now, I didn't want to get into all the details of, of the duties and prohibitions that we see in the larger catechism. But of particular interest to me at this point are some of the sins that the divine's list is being forbidden with this first commandment. And they say this, that this first commandment forbids ignorance, forgetfulness, misapprehensions, false opinions, and unworthy and wicked thoughts of God. Beloved, did you hear that? It is a sin to be ignorant of God. It is a sin to forget God. It is a sin to have misapprehensions of God, to have false opinions of him, to have unworthy and wicked thoughts of God. Well, how in the world are you going to avoid ignorance of God? How are you going to avoid having false opinions and thoughts about him? Well, beloved, the only way you're going to do that is to study and have a proper and right understanding of the scriptures. And that involves studying theology. That's what theology is, ultimately. To know our God. I wanted to highlight this point today more than anything. Because it's so common to hear today from so many people. Well, I just want to get along with God and seek him. I've done it myself. I remember I used to go to the, whatever that mountain was called in Talladega, go camping and just go alone and seek God. 
I don't know what I was waiting for, some vision, or I don't know. But there's this language, well, I just need to get alone and get with God. While at the same time, downplaying or just flat out refusing to study our Bibles in depth, to study theology, to study doctrine. Beloved, I'm here to tell you that that's pure nonsense. That's only going to lead you down the path of idolatry. Hosea writes in chapter 4, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. And then in verse 6, he says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of God, I also will forget your children. Remember I told you last week, we have a duty to establish the law not only with ourselves, but with our families, with our children, with those around us. Here it is again. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I'm going to forget your children. In Acts 22, we read that while Paul was waiting for them, that is Silas and Timothy at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so Paul, verse 22, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. For what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps fill their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone in the image formed by the art and imagination of man. You know, there are many today, including some apologists, who argue that when Paul was pointing out to the altar of the unknown God, that that unknown God was actually Yahweh. They just didn't realize it. And so Paul is trying to find a point of commonality with these people. And he wants to give them more information about this God that they kind of unknowingly serve. Well, that's absurd. For what commonality could Paul find with an unknown God? How do you find commonality with ignorance? Unless you want to say that the commonality you share with the ignorant is that you're ignorant. Which clearly was not the case with Paul. Paul's spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. He was angered at their ignorance. 
And then, he, and then I think he's mocking me. You worship in ignorance. You worship the unknown. Well, let me proclaim to you the truth about God. So he tells them you know, how God, God made us, how he governs us, his providence. That he, where is he getting all that information from? He's getting it from scripture. And then he says this in verse 30. This don't sound like commonality to me. He says this, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Repent of your ignorance. Repent of your misapprehensions. Repent of your false opinions about God. Turn away from that stuff. And understand the day is coming when the Lord himself is going to descend and judge the world in righteousness. He's going to judge the world with the law. Beloved, if our understanding of God is to be true and right, it's not enough just to be sincere about it. You can be sincerely wrong. It must be in accord with God's understanding of himself as he, as, he, as he is revealed in his word. If your view of God is not in accordance with God's actual being and character as he has revealed, then whatever you believe is false. For then you would be believing in a God of your own making, an empty, impotent, mute, deaf, dumb, and blind idol, a figment of your own imagination. And beloved, God hates this. He despises it. God will destroy all idols and all those who refuse to repent of worshiping them because he will not give his glory to another, Isaiah 42.8. Just read the scriptures. In his holy anger, Jehovah destroyed Judah, Jeremiah 5. In his holy anger, Jehovah destroyed Egypt, Jeremiah 47. In his holy anger, Jehovah destroyed Babylon, Jeremiah 51. In AD 70, he leveled Jerusalem and the temple. Over one million Jews slaughtered. He's not playing games here, beloved. Your understanding of God matters. And if it's opposed to that revelation he's given of himself and you refuse to submit to his revelation, there will be consequences. In 1 Kings 20, verse 28, we read that God had Israel destroy the Syrians because they had a faulty view of God, faulty doctrine of God. We read that a man of God came near and spoke to the king of Israel and said, thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, the Lord is the God of the mountains, but he's not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hands and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they pitched one over against the other seven days. And so it was that in the seventh day, the battle was joined and the children of Israel slew of the Syrians a hundred thousand footmen in one day. 
And the rest fled to Aphek and to the city. And there a wall fell upon 27,000 men that were left. Beloved, God made it clear to idolaters. Here we see an example of how idolatry attempts to divide sovereignty over, of, of different spheres over the world among various gods. They say, well, he's the god of the mountains, but he's not a god of the valleys. He's sovereign over here, but he's not sovereign over here. Just as secularism today claims that God is irrelevant or inappropriate to certain areas of life. Just as even there are some within the church with this radical two-kingdom theology stuff. Well, God's sovereign over here in this sphere, but he's not in this sphere. Beloved, God answered that nonsense centuries ago, and he slaughtered 127,000 Syrians to make the point. What you believe about God is of the utmost importance. Jeremiah cries out, has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The words before me, beloved, compel us to consider the nature and character of our God, as well as to think much about the source of that information. We are not free to think and to feel about God however we see fit. And as we have seen, if we do so, we will do so to our own destruction. And though the catechism's question and answer does not state this in those exact words, this is the train of thought demonstrated here. For in seeking to understand the meaning of the words before me, they go on to define who this God is, according to the scriptures. And they do so in these three respects. One, God sees all things and takes notice. Hebrews 4.13 says, that No creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And Jeremiah says, 23, 24, can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him? Saith the Lord, do not I fill heaven and earth? Beloved, all things have their existence in him. God knows all and God sees all. Not because he's some Santa-like guy traveling around real fast on his sled and learning things, but rather all things exist in him as his thought. As Fisher states, God has a most intimate, perfect, and comprehensive knowledge of all things. Psalm 147.5, his understanding is infinite. And that intimate, perfect, and comprehensive knowledge of all things is rooted not so much in the perfect and comprehensive knowledge of the creatures, which are finite, as in the perfect and comprehensive knowledge of himself and his own excellencies and perfections, which are infinite. 
He is the first cause. He sees all things at once in his own essence, distinctly, infallibly, and immutably. How then do we suppose that we can escape his notice? How then do we suppose that we can honor and worship our vain imaginations and idols, even if doing so in the secrecy of our own mind, and yet think that we can escape his sight, that we can escape he who all things lay before his face because all things exist in him? It's impossible. And secondly, the vines tell us that God is much displeased with our sin, particularly the sin of idolatry. Take notice, beloved, that not only does no one or no place escape the all-seeing eyes of God, but for what purpose? Hebrews 4 says that we will give an account. Jeremiah goes on to condemn the false prophets who prophesy lies. Psalm 44 Verses 20 and 21. If we have stretched out our hands to a strange God, shall not God search this out? It's a rhetorical question. He is going to search it out, beloved. Prophesying judgment on Israel in Deuteronomy 29, Moses says, quote, all the nations will say, why has the Lord done this to the land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say it's because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are to this day. And then lastly, Fisher asked this question. He said, well, what influence then ought the presence of an all-seeing God have upon us in all our actions? And his answer, the consideration of this ought to quicken and animate us to every duty, Genesis 5, 22 and 24, and affright and deter us from every sin as being an affronting of him to his face, who is our witness, and ere long will be our judge. Because God is there, he must always be acknowledged as being there. We will think and act as fools, for all men know that he is there, Romans 1. We must always be taken into account in everything that we say and everything that we do. He is the greatest and loftiest being who could fill all our thoughts and affections and therefore should be in all of our thoughts and affections. So our thoughts and affections should be directed to him and by his self-revelation. God desires to be rightly known and not just sincerely thought about. Well, beloved, I've come to an end here, this commandment. I want to get into the no other gods part of it. Maybe I'll bring that up next Lord's Day, Lord willing. But I hope that just in this intro, I've given you much to think about and consider. 
this is a very sober and serious matter that we know who God is, that we do not continue to live and to think in ignorance and in error. Let us pray.